We're still awaiting official confirmation from the Premier League, but it is understood that clubs have agreed to that restart date of June the 17th. And that's where there will be a chance for those two games in hand to be played. Aston Villa against Sheffield United and Manchester City against Arsenal. And we have official confirmation. The Premier League returns this week. This return of the, the Premier League will signify something bigger, more of a, a return to normality. After suspending play on March 13th, the English Premier League has been working with their clubs, players and government health officials in launching Project Restart. The league will look to play the remaining 92 matches in six weeks plus three rounds of midweek fixtures with the season concluding on July 26th. That's a lot of footy. Rob Harris is the global sports correspondent for the Associated Press. He joins the podcast to discuss the types of safety protocols the league has implemented and how they plan to make their empty stadiums feel as if they're at capacity. Rob Harris is AP's global sports correspondent, but he really, really stands out in the global sport, football, or as we call it, soccer. And Rob, thank you for joining us. And as the league of all leagues, the Premier League is undergoing the return and project restart. What is the biggest challenge for the Prem in terms of getting back to playing? Well, one of the big ones is ensuring that the rate of infection across the country does not go up and that would ultimately lead to potential new lockdowns being in place by the government. They've talked about regional lockdowns potentially rather than national ones and also securing the playing environment to ensure that there aren't cases of COVID-19 spreading amongst squads that in any way means a team cannot fulfil its fixtures. So very much the uh, the wider health concerns of the nation are reflected through football. Rob, for our listeners in North America, can you give them a sense of the medical procedures that players and personnel are going through? Yeah, well, for the last few weeks, the players and coaches around them have been facing twice-weekly COVID-19 tests. And around match days, there'll be a very particular uh, set of medical requirements there. Anyone entering the stadium has to have a temperature check. They have to fill in a questionnaire to answer various questions about their health and who they've been in contact with. Then for those personnel who are going to be in what's known as the red zone on the pitch, and that's around 100 people, including the referee and medical personnel as well, they have to have had COVID-19 tests and they have to have tested negative in the build-up to the game. But ultimately, if you do not pass the temperature check at the stadium you won't be allowed in we obviously know the appetite for football in the uk specifically is so strong but i'm gonna be honest it's gonna be a bit weird to have a premiership match with no supporting section with no songs being chanted without fans in the stadium what has the conversation been like about what the atmosphere or lack thereof is going to be as these games return I think we've all been in some press boxes maybe where some of the journalists end up cheering for a team. Uh, but obviously everyone hopes that hope they are neutral. And, uh, you know, we are expecting a contingent of journalists to be allowed in the stadium, uh, more than 20. But otherwise, it will just be the executives in the director's box. So maybe you'll hear them uh, cheering. Although it seems the uh, the Liverpool uh, ownership group, they haven't managed to make it across from uh, from the States 
in time to beat the quarantine because uh, Britain did impose at the start of this week a mandatory 14-day quarantine period on arrival for anyone arriving um, outside of the region. But it is going to be strange in the stadiums and there are various things being put into place. You've got Brighton who have asked for fans to submit pictures themselves and for for £20 they can appear on a cardboard cutout in the stands. Other clubs are doing similar as well. You've got a canvas at Manchester United. They're going to put fans' pictures on as they try to cover the vast emptiness of the stands. So various things are being put in place. As for the artificial crowd noise that will only be an option for television viewers and you'll be able to switch it on or switch it off whether or not you want to to have that and that's coming from uh, the fifa game maker ea and it's going to be very um, meticulously engineered and placed within the game so there'll be a sound engineer trying to work out that it does actually fit the precise moment i think we saw one of the the hardest ones for that last weekend in Bundesliga when uh, Bayer Leverkusen played Borussia Dortmund and I was listening to the artificial broadcast of that um, in terms of the fan noise and in the first 10 minutes or so you had the situation where there was a goal that was then went to VAR so that's when normally the stadium would go hushed anyway and really sort of anxious in terms of will the goal be allowed and it was a Leverkusen home goal and then, of course, the goal was eventually given, which would normally lead to a, a big outburst of joy, the fact that VAR hasn't, hasn't overruled it. But you didn't quite detect that on the uh, Bundesliga's artificial sound. So th- there are many particular moments that it will give a bit of intrigue to listen out for. How, how does the uh, the artificial fans noise cope with the uh, variations of the match? There's an interesting intersection between the uh, desire, certainly for publications, to want to know how many people tested positive, who tested positive, and then the leagues as well as teams probably not releasing the specific names of those who have tested positive. How is the Premier League handling this, this sort of these notions of privacy versus, um, versus you know, perhaps an argument that the public should know who tested positive? Yeah, the Premier League are releasing the results twice a week, but anonymized, so they'll say how many people from how many clubs and no indication of even which club anyone has tested positive from. We have had two rounds of the test that have delivered no positives and we have a club saying it was them. We had Tottenham announcing that they were one of the positives last week but they didn't identify who it was who tested positive. Now one of the intriguing aspects is the new uh, tracking trace that the government has introduced. I mean, some countries brought it in a lot longer ago, several months ago, this to to ensure that anyone who did test positive for coronavirus, they then listed who they'd been in contact with and they were alerted to, to try to spread monitor the spread of the uh, virus. So what many would think was, well, if a player eventually tests positive who's been on the pitch with other teammates and opponents well shouldn't the entire group of people then go into the uh, period of self-isolation of a week to ensure they're clear of it well what they're saying is that players don't come into close enough contact for long enough in games for it to warrant that so they believe that they do not need to submit to that um, quarantining and also the fact it's a workplace rather than another environment so they believe that the the wider advice being given to the British public doesn't necessarily apply. A name we do know is that of Spurs midfielder Dele Alli, and not because he tested positive, but because he was suspended for one match or posting mocking coronavirus material. I, I was surprised somewhat that he was suspended because it is, I suppose, a slippery slope. 
It's fine as well. It's going to have to take a face-to-face education course. What has the reporting of this story been like in the UK and how did it surface? Yeah, it first surfaced in February. This so at a time when the coronavirus was not in a serious situation, certainly in the UK at that time, obviously across in Asia. And he was seen in an airport filming across at a man of Asian appearance, seemingly mocking him in a Snapchat video. It's obviously taken several months for this case to be heard and completed by the FA. And the FA's case was that he did target this man to mock him out of aggravated uh, causes for nationality. So they believe it was, and um, there were racial over, um, undertones to it. The FA did establish that Delhi Ali is not racist, but within it, they also found that um, what Delhi Ali argued was the fact that, you know, this, this, this guy was coughing. So that's why he was actually particularly uh, singling him out in the video, which, you know, the FA panel did seem to back up. And what they actually concluded, the commission, was the um, creation and distribution of the offending material was more the product of spontaneous ill-judged stupidity rather than any sense of malicious intent. And Deli Ali himself apologised for what he called an extremely poorly judged joke about a virus that's now affected us more than we could have imagined referring to back then. And he says he's grateful the FA confirmed that his actions were not intentionally racist because I despise racism of any kind. Now, this wasn't a video that was posted for the masses in public on a public social media forum. It was to a small closed group of friends on Snapchat. And then he's unhappy, obviously, the fact that one of those people who had access to the video went and uh, gave it to a newspaper. So it's a question of privacy and also um, some stupidity and offensiveness on Delhi Ali's part. And one of the reasons that they um, imposed this one match ban is it very much related to a past case in the last year of Bernardo Silva, uh, the Manchester City player, who was banned for a picture he posted on social media, which compared his teammate Benjamin uh, Mendy to a character on a packet of chocolates, which was deemed to be racially offensive. So this type of case the FA does deal with quite often. And the fact that the character on the chocolates um, is black and it's led to this uh, one match ban because, you know, the FA does take uh, these cases and pursue them where there are particularly um, racially aggravated circumstances. One of the real impacts when it comes to COVID-19 is revenue. And I'm particularly interested in not necessarily how this has impacted the big clubs, but you know, soccer across the UK is massive and we have divisions below the Premier League. Can you give us sort of a, a large snapshot of um, how painful this three-month stretch has been for some of these lower league clubs in the UK? Yeah, I mean, what a lot of people won't necessarily understand or realise actually is the fact that it's not just the Premier League, but four professional divisions in English uh, soccer. There should actually be 92 professional clubs, but um, Berry was expelled from the league in August over its uh, financial mismanagement and various issues over its ownership, which meant they couldn't fulfill the financial obligation. So only 91, that's 91 professional clubs. And even in the fourth tier, they will attract thousands into a game. So their business models are built on the match day revenue from, from the fans and prohibiting factors in terms of even resuming the season, the financial cost of the COVID-19 testing required and of paying 
uh, staff when you've got no revenue coming in. So you have had clubs that have taken advantage of the government furlough scheme, which is a coronavirus job retention scheme. So the government pays um, 80% of salaries up to £2,500 a month. And it ensures, hopefully, people can maintain their jobs and they'll be there to come back to um, at the end of the crisis. That scheme runs in its current form until August, which fits in with the next season resuming. But there are huge doubts over whether fans will be allowed into any stadiums next season at the start. Just this week, the British government held its first meeting specifically with sports, including football, about how and when fans can start to resume going into stadiums, which we are hearing some noises from across Europe that some of the big leagues are getting edging closer to fans coming in. We have seen other countries where, um, like Hungary that have already got fans in social distancing. But there are great concerns over those lower league clubs, part of the organisation called the EFL, the English Football League. It is two to four, where they're in a fight for survival for some of those clubs at the moment. And it's the big concern about how they stay in business when there's no revenue coming into them, particularly because of the way the business models are. So many of them spend significant, vastly significant sums of their revenue on player salaries, all trying to chase promotion, ultimately right up there to the uh, to the Premier League. And we have seen teams that have embarked on that journey from the lower leagues up to the Premier League, like Bournemouth in recent years to show how it is possible but the chasing the dream does come at a cost if you can't fulfill it and you have big financial obligations and even more so if you're in an unprecedented time where there is no football. It's a great point and let's be honest a lot of these decisions are made based off of money and not morals and there's a risk assessment when it comes to being able to have games with the real threat of the COVID-19 virus there was recently a contentious decision to abandon the Women's Super League season. How has COVID-19 impacted the women's game? Yeah, it's led to all the leagues being abandoned, which um, is unique across the uh, football pyramid in England. Now, as I get back to the previous answer, the while the third and fourth tier seasons have been cancelled and curtailed, they are still going to complete the playoffs that's to determine the final promotion positions um, from the league so there will still be four teams from each league contesting the final promotion position there are automatic ones so those leagues have been curtailed the second tier championship is going to run to its completion but that's not the case in the women's leagues they have all been curtailed including the uh, the top flight the women's super league which is the only professional women's league in europe and it led to chelsea being uh, awarded the uh, the title even though when the season stopped in february they were points behind manchester city why did that happen they used a points per game ratio because um, Chelsea had played a game less, so uh, it worked in their favour. It also saw Liverpool relegated, but actually, you know, that actually speaks to some of the lack of investment as well in the Liverpool women's team at a time they are pushing uh, and very on the verge of winning the uh, men's Premier League title. But a lot of it came down to the finances, the fact that the women's game does run at a loss. The Football Association, which runs the WSL, puts in several million pounds a year to, in to support it, to support its growth at the moment, because at the moment it doesn't generate broadcast revenue domestically. The broadcasters that do have the rights are covering the costs of the production. That will change in a year or so's time. They are 
hoping to be able to monetize those rights on the back of the fact England have now reached um, back-to-back World Cup semi-finals. They also reached the European Championship semi-finals in 2017, and we have seen a big rise in attendances in the last season. The record crowd for the WSL at Tottenham for a North London derby against Arsenal. You got 25,000 in for Chelsea, Tottenham as well, Manchester derby at the Etihad. So there's a game is starting to grow, but they they wanted to try to protect completing this season as a, as a resuming and starting next season in full rather than completing this season because they believe that the uh, the costs of trying to do all the testing was just uh, too prohibitive. That's despite the fact in Germany they have resumed the women's version of the Bundesliga and in part that was by support of the um met some of the men's club helping to provide into a fund which also helped the lower men's leagues as well but it does send out a bad signal the fact that in England like in Italy the women's leagues have been curtailed of the major countries France obviously stopped both men's and women's competitions. Rob what kind of talk exists at the moment among Premier League officials among health officials regarding the potential for a second wave of COVID-19 as the weather turns colder. And the big thing is as the distancing and easing of the regulations takes place. So as of next week, the department stores can open again. More and more of British society is opening up. We're still yet to have restaurants and pubs reopening in sense you can sit there socially distancing but once that does come into effect then you increase the risk of COVID-19 cases rising I mean it's, it, it is the great unknown at the moment in terms of how the virus mutilates or changes and whether it weakens or not or strengthens and the, the, really the questions to the medics there in terms of trying to forecast just what will happen to the coronavirus in the months ahead and also particularly as we do enter the winter then the thinking is well of course in, in the summer people, more people are outside so the risk of infection does decrease when people are indoors then obviously the risk increases because you're in in closer confines which is one of the reasons obviously why until now pubs and restaurants have maintained clothes why they've avoided reopening the shopping centers as well so there is the great concern because in Britain, this, the feeling is amongst many of the experts that the lockdown happened too late and some think even by locking down a week or two earlier, potentially thousands of lives could have been saved. Obviously, you know, that's not been officially verified by uh, multiple studies yet, but there are some scientists who, are, who, who have criticised the, the slowness of Boris Johnson's government to lock down the country. And sport was at the heart of that because in the second week of March, we had not only Liverpool hosting Atletico Madrid in the Champions League, you had hundreds of thousands of people going to Cheltenham for the big horse racing festival. And you had these scenes of people crammed in together at the horse racing at a time when already other European countries were starting to shut down sporting events. And there was some very, you know, it's a great sense of uneasiness that week over why these events were going ahead. And at the time, the, the government medical advisors were actually saying there is not a significant risk of infection spreading by allowing these events to be staged. Since then, some studies have, have suggested there's an, there an increase of COVID-19 cases around the Cheltenham area from the festival, around Liverpool, after that game against Atletico Madrid. 
because at a time the Atletico fans were flying in from Madrid, which had far harsher restrictions already in place in terms of restricting movement in Spanish society. And yet they were able to come freely into the country. Also, other countries were imposing restrictions on entry quarantines. Yet that only happened this week in Britain, where you have to self quarantine for 14 days after arrival, uh, as we were mentioning earlier, <laughs> affects the Liverpool ownership. And the thing that shut the Premier League down eventually in March was not the government orders. It was the fact Mikel Arteta, the Arsenal manager, tested positive, which led to the Arsenal squad having to self-isolate. On the same night, it was then also revealed a Chelsea player tested positive and the Chelsea squad had to self-isolate. So it then took another week or so for the government to actually withdraw support for sporting events in terms of medical facilities and things like that. But that slowness to shut down sports in this country, I think will come at the heart of any potential future inquiry into just how coronavirus did spread. And yeah, ultimately, it was uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi at Chelsea and Mikel Arteta at Arsenal testing positive, which some say might have helped to save lives by closing down football sooner than the government intended to. One thing that has brought people out of their homes has been George Floyd and protests in London. As the protests look, if not as frequent uh, as they've been here in North America, is there a fear in the UK that those crowds are going to increase the virus? And also, do you think now that sport is back, some footballers are going to be speaking out on issues that they weren't necessarily comfortable with before? Yeah, I mean, the government did try to urge people to stay away from large crowds of protests while obviously saying it is within the British rights and tradition that people are allowed the freedom to be able to go on the streets and protest. There was a small minority of the uh, protests that did turn violent, which obviously attracted a lot of attention, was criticised by the government. But the heart of it was a mass show of peaceful support and solidarity with the Justice for George Floyd campaign and also a heightened sense of not only injustices in the current times, but also of past wrongs. And particularly, it was probably highlighted with the toppling of the statue of a slave trader in uh, Bristol, in the southwest of England. And that has stood there for for many years. So it's brought this sort of reckoning in terms of some of the figures who are venerated in British society, who have statues for them, whereas their own roles in profiting from the slave trade now sits very uncomfortably and is widely condemned. And it's just how we judge these times with then. We've even seen some comedies being taken off uh, streaming services in this country, comedies that may be only 10, 15 years old because of characters in blackface. And then you're seeing footballers who are obviously providing a voice in terms of their increased activism and calling out injustice, calling out the lack of opportunities for black players in terms of getting into coaching, the lack of diversity in the boardrooms behind those taking the decisions, particularly in football, the fact it is very white dominated, the people taking the decisions in football. It also has to be said, it's a media issue as well. A lot of the journalists covering soccer in England are white men, that there are Deep questions over lack of gender diversity and ethnic diversity in terms of those reporting on on football. And it's uh, imperative, actually, the industry does all it can to actually uh, encourage more diversity into those reporting on the game. But I think when the season does start, we are going to see significant expressions of support for the Black Lives Matters movement. And we've already seen that in Germany as well in the last week. And that significant 
shifting position from FIFA saying that you are allowed messages on undergarments, which had previously been prohibited under the uh, the laws of soccer. The fact they are allowing demonstrations of protest. These are not political protests. These are actually social protests, which some people perhaps haven't made the distinction between. It's about just trying to eliminate racial injustices from society. Well, it is definitely a moment in history right now, whether it's football, whether it's health and whether it's race. You have been covering it and talking about it all. Thank you so much for coming on here and talking about it with us. Great to join you and keep safe and keep well. Well, Donovan, listening to Rob Harris, you can't help but get excited, knock on wood, about the Premier League returning. I think it's certainly the best soccer league in the world, historic clubs. And we will see. And I think the North American leagues will learn a lot when it comes to the medical provisions and and how that league sort of heads forward over the next couple of weeks. As we turn to our last word segment, which we do for every episode where we provide you with something that uh, has caught our attention, whether it's uh, a piece for from a newspaper, a magazine, some kind of video segment, something that... Uh, sort of offers a uh, some perspective between the nexus of COVID-19 and sports. And Donovan, mine this week is, I think our listeners should pay attention and follow the Miami Herald. Now you ask why? Well, the number of cases in Florida have been, um, have been heading up over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, I'm sure some of that has to do with increased testing, but it is specifically important, I think, to follow if you're a sports fan because that is where the NBA, obviously, hub is, Orlando. And we have seen this week NBA players be very, very forceful uh, about questioning whether they want to be inside this quarantine situation for three months, whether they think it is uh, worth it for their health. So I would say pay attention to the Miami Herald, the, the state's biggest newspaper, regarding COVID-19 coverage, regarding whether the uptick continues, because that will certainly relate directly to the NBA. That's a great call, Richard. And cases in 19 different states in the U.S. are actually going up right now. So the Miami Herald's reporting on Florida and beyond is really, really important. I'm going to take this time to shout out another podcast and keep it in the family, not give the love to a print article like I normally do. The A16Z podcast takes a look at the return of home-based healthcare. At the turn of the century, we moved from doctor's visits in the house to going to institutions for our health care. Well, now that we're in a much more on-demand economy and we're living in a global pandemic, maybe we'll see return to healthcare via technology like Zoom and people coming into our homes to visit. What are the pros and cons of that? That podcast takes a look. Speaking of podcasts, give a love to this one. Please continue to like, to subscribe. It's really the only thing you can do for us other than listening to fruition like you are right now if you enjoyed this one go back scroll up episode 19 was the latest on the cfl thanks to randy ambrosia and nate bahar for joining us as players are starting to go back into team facilities and one i've actually seen a lot of feedback from is the one before that episode 18 peak performance during a pandemic matt nickel was some great advice for not just athletes but for everyday people on how you can take care of yourself and stay healthy and that is the most important thing. Please, please, please continue to stay safe, take care of yourself and others.